This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Jason, it is week 26, working from home, kind of. We're seeing, you know, people slowly make their way back to offices. And I got to say, this week, there was a lot more talk and action toward getting people back to work uh, when it comes to New York City, especially among the Wall Street community. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. Yeah, excited to get into that. That is the story of the fall. Back to the office, back to school. So certainly pervades almost every conversation we had this week. We're also going to bring you another edition of Business Week Talks, your conversation with Brian Nickel, Mm -hmm. the CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. I'm going to say... I'm a fan. I've eaten some Chipotle over this pandemic. <laughs> I have ordered. Our family definitely has ordered uh, during uh, our time at home. No doubt about it. And this is a company that understands crises. Uh, so we'll see what he has to say about kind of where we are in the pandemic, what the outlook is for this company. And this is one that's been pivoting big time towards digital. So we'll dig uh, deeper into that. We begin this hour, though, with news also this week about AstraZeneca. They were pausing tests of the company's experimental shot after a patient became ill. Now, keep in mind, Jason, and this is something we tried to dig into with our conversations. This is delays, which are often a routine event for the pharmaceutical industry. And it's a reminder, though, that developing a safe and successful vaccine, it's going to take some time. And yet we know that every tick and talk toward the vaccine, regardless of who's involved, it immediately becomes one of the most read stories when it crosses the Bloomberg. No exception here. We caught up with one of our in-house go-to voices on COVID-19, Bloomberg News health reporter Michelle Cortez. It's kind of astonishing how quickly and smoothly everything has gotten to this point. We have more than two dozen vaccines in clinical trials for a virus that we didn't even know existed, that probably didn't even exist a year ago. So that is astonishing. And as you point out, there are normally hurdles and problems that come up. The way this one has been coming out is a little bit um, unsettling, to say the least. So we heard that AstraZeneca had paused its trial. They're saying that it's a very normal thing, that it happens when there's an unexplained illness. The condition that we're actually looking at, it's a spinal cord condition called uh, transverse myelitis, causes inflammation in the spinal cord, can lead to paralysis. And it is something that's worrisome. And I guess it's also a reminder, Michelle, at just how heightened all of this is and how heightened all of us are. We are we are both hopeful but I dare say feeling almost a little bit desperate because our very way of life has has been changed. We've seen tens and tens and tens of thousands of people die just in the United States. And it, there's a sense of urgency that I don't know we've ever collectively felt, certainly in my lifetime. I would agree with that. But also there is a concern here, of course, that, that there's belief that a vaccine is going to bring us back to normal. Right. But we do have an issue with, um, with vaccine hesitancy and skepticism yes. in the U.S. So the idea that, that some of this information is coming out not so smoothly is a, little bit, is a little bit concerning. Also, we did learn that there had been an earlier incident as well where they temporarily paused the trial and didn't disclose that where they, they had similar symptoms of, of you know, t- paralysis type issues. And it turned out that the patient had multiple sclerosis and they determined that it wasn't related to the vaccination, although the person had gotten the vaccination. We're not exactly sure why MS develops. So with two, with two potential ties to a neurological condition, you know, at some point people are going to be making a decision whether they're going to participate in a clinical trial, which clinical trial, and then when we get done, hopefully we'll have more than one option. Which one are you going to pick? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, there are different types of vaccines, and I've been trying to kind of brush up on it. I'm not an expert, but in terms of the creation of vaccines, right, there's different ways of doing it. And I do wonder, are certain vaccines potentially going to be safer than others? There are different ways to go about doing this. And it's really, again, astonishing the breadth of approaches that we have already that have emerged when it comes to coronavirus. There is some companies, there are some companies who are building off standard models that we already have, like seasonal influenza, mm-hmm. and they're just using a different, you know, ingredient basically in their vaccine. So they're hoping to provoke an immune system response to coronavirus instead of to influenza. Does that make when it safer, Michelle, or not necessarily? Well, I think that there's two ways to think about it. You have the platform, the way that you're going about doing it. And so for influenza, it's been given to, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people over over decades and decades, right? So the platform is a known platform. Then you're putting in a different uh, portion of the virus, yeah. you know, maybe the spike protein or something else. And so it's possible that the body would respond adversely to what you're putting into it, but the platform itself should be safe. Whether or not it's going to be effective is, is unknown. Right. But then there's completely novel ways, like what AstraZeneca is doing. It's, it's not currently used in any approved vaccine. Same as Moderna. They, yeah. Their approach is totally novel and different from AstraZeneca's. J&J is working on a similar thing, but also some um, more conventional approaches. So there is a wide variety. There is a wide variety. So you, you are our Google on the virus. We, can either, we could exactly. go to Google and, you know, look for things, or we could just bring you in, which yeah, is what we like exactly. to do. Which is much, <laughs> I, I feel like, much more helpful and much more enjoyable for us, to be honest. Yes. Uh, leave the Googling to the uh, chart of the day. All right, Michelle Cortez, thank you so much. Health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg. So great to catch up with her. And Jason, no doubt about it, one of our go-to voices when it comes to the virus, really understanding, as you say, the tick and tock of the headlines that come across. And what I love about her is, you know, she said to us, it's kind of been a surprise at how quickly and smoothly everything has gone. And we need to keep that in perspective, especially as we rush to get a vaccine. And that there will be some delays, and there are going to have to be some delays to make sure that it's a really safe vaccine and effective vaccine. That's right. We're settling into a long haul of sorts with all of this. There has been this rush, but it's not a magic bullet, and it's not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. It is part of the jigsaw puzzle that we're all putting together in real time, a 3D puzzle in many ways. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, another edition of Business Week Talks, the conversation you had with the CEO of Chipotle. Yes, indeed. We're talking about Brian Nickel. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Jason, it's a company synonymous with the fast casual space. It's in fact credited for creating it. Chipotle Mexican Grill, it's a company that took off like a rocket. It stumbled for a couple of years as it dealt with its own crisis, an E. coli crisis that was back in 2015. It led to a series of C-suite exits, attention from activist investors, and a new CEO two and a half years ago. So I caught up with the CEO, Chipotle's Brian Nickel. He is going to be featured in upcoming Business Week talks. And in this segment of our in-depth interview, we talked about the impact of the pandemic. I think where we are right now is in a, a state where I think everybody understands what they need to be doing. Uh, and so as a result, um, I think people are starting you know, to demonstrate good behavior so that we all contribute in really containing the pandemic. Uh, we've been very fortunate in our restaurants where our employees 
I think we're doing a lot of the right things. We put a lot of the right food safety practices and wellness practices in place. So that's giving people uh, confidence uh, to, you know, basically use Chipotle as a meal solution. And then obviously our digital business is giving people access for that off-premise occasion. That is becoming really critical. Yeah, and I want to talk about that because I feel like you were very prescient in terms of the investments you made. And when you came in about two and a half years ago, focusing on that. Before we get to that, though, I do want to ask you, are you preparing your company, your staff, for a second round with the virus come the fall and winter months? And, and I do wonder if you're kind of taking precautions or setting up, um, you know, just in case. Yeah, look, I think we definitely have uncertainty in front of us. Um, and so really the approach we're taking is we're following uh, the recommendations of the CDC and a lot of the local health departments around making sure our employees are wearing masks. We're practicing the social distancing. Uh, you know, no one works if they're not feeling healthy. Um, and, you know, obviously we continue to be in a working remote uh, environment. So uh, we want to take all the precautions we can to hopefully contain um, the pandemic and get to the other side of this. Um, you know, it'd be a, a real disappointment if we have a setback. And I'm really uh, hopeful that if we do all the right things as a company, as a community, uh, we can avoid that setback. Do you think we'll get one? You know, I, I, you know honestly, I, I, I really hope people do the right things right. going forward uh, so that we don't. You know, uh, I think the big recommendations out there are, you know, go get flu shots, wear your mask, practice social distance, avoid big crowds. And that's our best bet to avoid a real, you know, major flare up. Um, but, you know, cold and flu season, more people are probably not going to feel great. And it's important people get tested. They understand whether they have COVID or just a common cold or flu. And then they need to do the right things to protect themselves, their family, their friends and their communities. And I, I think if people just take that simple approach, um, I think, you know, we'll get past this a lot faster than uh, not taking those safe, safety precautions. So how do you keep, you know, your employees safe, motivated during these trying times? We talk about, you know, corporate culture when you've got people at home and people all over the place. How do you keep, though, your workers who have to be at work in order to get the job done? How do you keep them motivated during these trying times? And I'm, and I'm curious if you've made any employee policy changes during the pandemic. Yeah, look, Carol, I, I think it. Fortunately for us, we, we've always been focused on our purpose, which is yeah. around this uh, idea of cultivating a better world through food with integrity. And we've got some clear cultural values, um, you know, around basically authenticity lives here. The movement is real, um, you know, teach and taste Chipotle. And then the line is the moment of truth. And the reason why these values are really important is we've used them to guide a lot of our decisions. Uh, we believe our purpose and our values drive our culture. It's why people love to work at Chipotle. And we've been consistent, I think, in all our decision-making against our purpose and our values. And I think it's given a lot of our employees a sense of pride. Um, they love the fact that, you know, regardless of how hard um, the decision is, we uh, want to do the right thing for our communities, uh, moving our purpose forward and obviously our employees. So. You know, we were fortunate. We already had a lot of things in practice right. from a wellness standpoint and, uh, you know, paid sick leave and uh, a lot of employee programs around healthcare, mental wellness, um, you know, or I'm sorry, mental health benefits that were available for not just the employee, but their families. So <clears throat> we were trying to surround people with all the right things. And those have been even more important in these challenging times. And, you know, 
we've dialed up our communication. I'll tell you the other thing that has really been powerful is um, we have really worked hard to communicate with every single employee at Chipotle, all 90 plus thousand of them. Um, you know, we're doing Zooms and web calls and telephone calls. I just want to keep them up to date with the most, um, you know, up to date information. And the more they know, the more they can feel confident that we're making the right decisions and they're working in a safe environment. Um, I, I've had the pleasure of making some day trips, visiting restaurants. And I, I can tell yeah. you, it really gets you pumped up because our employees are so grateful um, to be working and to be a part of Chipotle and making a difference in their communities and moving our uh, company and culture forward. Well, and I'm guessing you're visiting a lot more workers because you guys have been on a significant hiring push. Back in July, you talked about hiring about 10,000 workers. So how has that push gone so far? Where are you in that process? Yeah, it's been, you know, we're very fortunate. People have been really excited to uh, join Chipotle and uh, the applications have been, uh, you know, frankly, really uh, exciting to see. Didn't you get something um, like 700,000? Know, so didn't you get something like 700,000 applications or something? It was crazy. You know, I, I don't remember what the number is, but it, I wouldn't be surprised if that's close to right. Yeah. Um, you know, because we have had, you know, I, I saw, we just had a job for uh, one of our digital opportunities open up. And uh, for just this one position, we had well over, you know, I think three or 400 applications. Uh, which is really amazing. Um, and you know now you times that out across 10,000 opportunities from you know crew members all the way up to jobs at our support centers. And uh, we've been very fortunate to attract really great people and uh, we've been able to retain really great people. So we're, we're feeling really fortunate with where we are with the people we have and the people that are drawn to, to work at Chipotle and apply and want to be a part of it what we're doing. That's Brian Nickel, the CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. And catch more of that Business Week Talks interview next week in the magazine, on the Bloomberg, online at Bloomberg.com. I mean, Jason, this is a company, they really have just kind of changed how we eat out in a casual way. And yet they understand crises like no other. They absolutely do. And so the playbook, while it's different for every crisis, mm -hmm. that sort of attitude, that posture, it certainly has to prepare you for the unexpected. Great, great interview. More to come on that one. You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, we hear from the interim dean of the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland talking about the dual pandemics. Right. The health crisis, as well as the problem with inequalities. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Carol, clearly we live in a world of dueling crises. We've got at least two going on right now, and we never know what's around the corner. Right. And that is making it all the more demanding for young business leaders and for those who train them. One of the folks tackling this is Ritu Agarwal. She is the interim dean of the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. She also understands that business school students, they need to be around each other, and that came through loud and clear. Check out our conversation. This has been such a wild ride for the past six months, and there are so many different things that I can talk about, but I do want to sort of take you through the arc of our experience. Let me start by what's it like inside the business school today. Density is low, but... Students are masked and they have fake smiles on their faces from what I can tell from behind their masks. Mm. 
they are just so glad to be back. Well, talk to us a little bit too, um, Dean Agarwal, about the adjustments that you guys have had to make in order to get students back on campus. So let me just talk about, uh, you know, sort of two pandemics that we've dealt with in the last six months, right? The first one is, of course, the public health crisis that is front and center in everybody's mind. Uh, but there's also a second, more subtle one that revealed itself at the end of May, and that's, you know, the national spotlight on uh, the racial injustice and systemic bias. So we've had to make adjustments to address both of these pandemics. So I'll start by focusing on the first, which has, uh, you know, of course, captured uh, everybody's attention, time and energy for six months now. Um, I want your listeners to remember two words, unprecedented and pivot, because that has really described our experience so far. So on March 11th, uh, you know, we all received um, an email and a text on our cell phones telling us to go home because the governor had just imposed the stay at home order. And literally overnight, uh, the campus emptied out. Um, Both campus and the city of College Park became ghost towns. And luckily, we were scheduled to go on spring break the following week, and we delayed the start of classes by another week. And that allowed us to make the first crucial pivot. You know, on a dime, we took 500 courses and we moved them all to online delivery. And let me just say, uh, Carol, anybody who's taught can appreciate the complexity of taking what was designed as a face-to-face course and moving it online in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks. You know, it's not just simply getting onto a Zoom meeting and giving a lecture. There are so many nuances related to teaching. There are so many different adjustments and pivots you have to make. So we did that. Uh, That was fall. And then the entire summer was spent uh, in... I want to say hundreds, if not thousands of hours of meetings, trying to figure out what should be our strategy in the face of a pandemic that nobody can predict, in the face of a virus that's totally unpredictable, uh, that's moving in uh, whatever direction it wants to, in the face of shifting public health guidance Mm -hmm. on how institutions should be uh, moving. So that's what our summer looked like. And when you um, think about uh, Dean Agarwal, the, the students, the interaction among students, the whole notion of a business education is an extremely collaborative one. And, and granted, we're all adjusting to that and we all are adjusting to, to working on Zoom. And Carol and I only see each other over video conference uh, at this point, literally. Hmm. Um but what's missing and, and how do you make up for it uh, if, some, uh, if even some of that interaction uh, has to be virtual? That's a great question, Jason, and one that we've grappled with. Um, we have an Office of Transformational Learning that has pedagogical experts who can allow us to recreate, if you will, not 100%, but pretty close to that, Uh, of that rich face-to-face interaction that you might have in an online setting. So we've tried to do that in as many of our classes as possible. But I do want to make one more point. One of the controversial decisions we made over the summer, and for exactly the reasons that you outlined, Jason, is we decided we're going to come back in fall and have a hybrid uh, quasi-in-person, quasi-online experience. And that's Ritu Agarwal. She's the interim dean of the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. Interesting to talk with her. I have to say, Carol, you know, mm-hmm. the nuts and bolts of getting 
back to business, in this case, business school, it is not easy. No, it's not easy. And especially as she talks about these two pandemics that are facing our world right now, uh, talking about, of course, the virus, and then also talking about diversity and inclusion. It's something the school has been focusing on a lot. She says they put a lot of initiatives in place, but she said... We can kind of do better, especially when it comes to attracting a more diverse uh, group of faculty. Yeah. And, and so there are things that can be, you know, definitely improved upon. And I think that point about the faculty is a really important one mm-hmm. that maybe we're not focusing as much on. And I also was intrigued by what she said about the case studies, what they are actually studying, the examples that they're right. using to learn about business. You need to think about diversity, inclusion, and a wider swath when it comes to that. That really stuck with me. Coming up, Jason, we've got one of those potential case studies. We're talking about Don Peebles. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. He has been practicing diversity and inclusion at his own firm for years and also helping others to do exactly the same. Yeah, it's a smart conversation. I took a lot away from this one as well. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, diversity and inclusion in action in the real estate world. What does it look like when you actually do this day to day? That's the question we pose to Don Peebles. He's the founder, chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. That's right, Jason. It's a privately held national real estate investment and development company. It's got a multi-billion dollar portfolio of projects, New York, Boston, Philly, Washington, D.C., Miami and out on the West Coast as well. He also served on the National Finance Committee of President Barack Obama. He's on the board of the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau. He's also the former chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. So he has seen the world from so many different perspectives. Initially, though, we talked about the short-term impact from the pandemic. Well, short, short-term impact, I think we're seeing it now. There's been a more of an exodus out of the cities um, and more so into the suburban markets. And then um, more people are relocating to uh, places like Florida, for example, uh, in preparation for the winter. But I think that you'll see um, a, a, a greater um, you know, stabilization as we get through this winter. I mean, the cities are not dead. New York City, while you know, it's, it's got limited occupancy right now in terms of office space, um, all, most restaurants are closed and other businesses are closed. Um, so there is a a, a, a short-term decline because tenants aren't able to pay their rent and the office tenants who generate a lot of activity in the marketplace, the office workers are not there either. But I think that's short-term. Um, I do think that the um, pandemic has structurally changed how we will consume office space as we go forward. I think that companies around the uh, country and around the globe, especially here in the U.S., are reevaluating how they deal with Uh, placing their employees, how much they're going to rely upon uh, remote working, which is proven for the typical office workers to be much more effective than um, most companies thought. And so I think that that will be a structural shift in um, the office use. Long term, I think that um, most retail um, has changed forever, but that was uh, pre-pandemic right. uh, technology it had disrupted retail considerably. And so when you think about sort of the, the reorganization, the rethinking of offices, Don, you know, what does that mean? Does, does the pricing change? Does the relationship between the owner and the tenant change? Does 
what gets developed change? I, I just wonder sort of thinking through the the mechanics and, and sort of playing that out, what it looks like. Well, I think that, first of all, I think that the easy one is what gets developed definitely changes. It will, what gets developed going forward will change in terms of how the office space will be configured going forward and how protocols will be put in place uh, in terms of how people enter buildings, how we vet people entering the buildings in terms of health. And uh, and even once this pandemic is is behind us, uh, the new buildings will be better uh, designed and, and better built to address a future potential pandemic as well. I think also the close proximity of co-working and how most companies were shifting towards open yeah. floor plans. I think that changes. Isn't and that kind so, of a, sorry to interrupt you, but isn't that kind of amazing? Cause it, that really <laughs> felt like something and listen, you know, us, I mean, you know, Bloomberg, like we were all about the open. We yeah. still are to, to a large extent cause nobody's really here. But I mean, that seemed like a, a trend that was just going into the, going into the future Un, unabated in many ways. Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg was very innovative when you all built your, your offices um, 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 in, in, on the east side in the old Alexander site. Yeah. What happened there is you all created a almost a live and work environment to a degree because you've got the open cafeteria, everything was open, um, even the waiting areas and so forth where visitors were open and your studios were pretty visible and open as well. So I think that that configuration is going to change to some degree, especially yeah. um, how work, how people work at their desk. And also, I think gone is going to be the days, even with the law firms and the like, where each individual has their own office or their specific workspace. I think that that will change because you'll see a lot more remote working. And also those who travel to other locations will not need a fixed office. So I think the fixed office um, uh, or fixed workspace has changed, will change. And I think also you'll see more uh, collaborative spaces that have some form of social distancing potential. And, and for the immediate use, uh, you'll see that in place uh, now. I mean, but you, I mean, you can really, you can see that across the board. I happen to be, by the way, I'm not in Florida. I happen to be in Sag Harbor, but yes. I was in Manhattan last week. And, 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 and what you're seeing in, in, um, uh, office spaces that are being utilized and very few people are there. And I think that's going to take a lot of time for people to come back and, and buildings are going to have to, and, and employers are going to have to tell people by action um, that it's safe to come back. So Don, let's talk about the wealth gap because it has been a subject that we have, I think, taken much more seriously, candidly, over the past couple months as we've really started to, I hope, embrace this reckoning that we're seeing around racial inequality and being Bloomberg and Business Week, we follow the money and the wealth gap is vast. I don't have to tell you, what do we do about it? Well, I think we've got to widen the opportunity. I think that there's no, you know, talent is 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 distributed uh, indiscriminately and, uh, you know, opportunity is distributed on a discriminatory basis. And I don't. I think that we've got to look at expanding access to capital, expanding um, opportunities in every industry across the board, and be mindful that we, as business owners and entrepreneurs and CEOs, 
have to take affirmative steps in providing fair access to uh, career and economic opportunities to minorities and women, uh, because both are severely underrepresented in every industry of any consequence in this country. You know, Don, though, you know, our team here at Bloomberg did a story about Silicon, black Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and how they had reached certainly success in their lives and, you know, in terms of Silicon Valley, but they were even having trouble being able to support other minority-owned businesses at their own firms. We're finding it difficult to get others to get on board with them. And so I wonder, what's the trick here? How do we change this? Well, I think that we have to, I mean, my industry is one that I think is has an easy remedy to it. It's um, you know, the real estate development business is a low barrier to entry industry. You can start off um, from any perspective um, as an entrepreneur and go into real estate development. It doesn't require any kind of license or specialized skill. It requires some talent and access to capital. And the capital that funds real estate is mainly through private equity. And uh, private equity's biggest investors are public employee pension systems. And so, for example, there's about $70 trillion in venture capital and private equity right now. And about 1.3% of that money is deployed to businesses owned or run by minorities and women combined. And yet a significant portion of the contributors to the public pension systems, the workers who, whose money is being invested, are minorities and women. And so if we can have fair access to that capital and those investors tell the allocators of capital that they want to see their capital deployed in a more diverse manner, prudently, by the way, but right. in a more diverse manner. Um, there is no shortage right now of capital in the marketplace. There's a shortage of where to deploy the capital. That's why we're seeing that the market react the way it is. Um, and so I think the other aspect that's important is people have to understand we're not in, we don't, in order to bring equality, it's not about redistributing wealth, redistributing opportunities. It's just expanding it and expanding um, opportunities to create wealth. And so, Don, how do those institutional investors, I agree with everything you're saying, and, and you're echoing something that John Rogers said on this program about the institutional investors and especially the public pension funds, which candidly, they've gotten religion about some other issues. You know, sometimes it's around gun control and, and other things where they've essentially said, look, I'm not going to invest in certain sectors or I'm not going to invest in certain managers unless they meet these certain criteria. ESG has been an area, especially around the environment and, and climate where they've done that. Why haven't they done this yet in your estimation? Well, I think that in part because they are mis, uh, misinterpreting their role as fiduciaries. I think that the idea to pick the most qualified, the best, and, and, the, and the least risky is right. that the firm that's been around longest. And so if you're going to have an aversion to first, second, third time funds, then it's going to be very difficult for you to create an environment where there will be more right. minority and women managed funds. So they've got to be willing to um, make strategic, prudent investments and we're utilizing a different criteria. That's Don Peebles, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. So much to say about kind of where we are in terms of the real estate world, where we are going. You know what? What really stuck with me, Jason, was how he said he does think the pandemic has structurally changed how we use 
our office space yeah. in particular. Uh, and we'll see how much of that sticks. But man, he's got a front row seat to this. We're going to pull that thread a little bit more, Carol, next hour when we hear from another legendary real estate investor talking about Tom Barrick of Colony Capital. He's going to talk to us about the future of cities and the suburbs. So that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including a fascinating story. It was one of the most read on the Bloomberg when it hit the Bloomberg terminal. It was all about a letter to Wall Street workers about, hey, why don't you come back? to work. Plus, we're going to hear from the president and CEO of Mahindra Automotive North America about what they're doing in Detroit. And we're going to round out the show talking about your pet. It is a big (laughs) business, right, Scout? I love my dog. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week, week 26. So, mm. Carol, if I've got my math right, that's half a year we've been working from home. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I still can't believe it. Uh, and listen, we're starting to see more people trying to get back to work, certainly more conversations about it. And that certainly is something we're going to get into over the next 60 minutes. We're also going to hear from the president and CEO of Mahindra North America. They understand the auto space. Um, so we got a really great view of what's going on in that world, but also how that company is helping its community around itself. We're thinking so much more about our space, where we live and where we work, and where we live at least. Increasingly, we're living with pets, and we're going to talk about that with the CEO and founding partner of the Animal Policy Group. I heard your Mm. dog Scout's ears (laughs) perk up at this interview. She is a spoiled little pup. First up, though, something that caught our attention and really the attention of Bloomberg Terminal users. Man, this was the most read story on the Bloomberg Terminal. And yeah, that's what's going to happen when you see this headline. Dear Wall Street, your boss wants you to come back to the office. Yep. Everyone was reading this, sending it around, asking what you thought. Bloomberg News finance reporter Michelle Davis, she had a busy week. She filled us in on what's going on. This is really a story about a lot of the fear and tension and anxiety that's bubbling up on Wall Street right now with, you know, many folks considering whether they should return to the office after, in some cases, working from home for as long as six months. And uh, over the summer, a lot of the banks started opening their offices back up, but they weren't requiring anyone to return. And for the time being, it seems like they still aren't requiring people to come in. Um, but more and more people are, are starting to wonder if, you know, as they're reading between the lines of memos from their bosses, they're trying to figure out, you know, is my boss saying that we work better in person because he wants me to go back? If I don't go back, is it going to jeopardize my boss, my job? You know, there's a lot, a lot up in the air, a lot of uncertainty that's coming around with this with the open-endedness. And so what we're hearing is that as more and more workers start to go back over the next few weeks, be it because they want to get away from, you know, annoying housemates or they want to change the scenery or they are worried that, you know, bosses or colleagues are going to think that they're weak. Um, Wall Street is going to be looking at this as, as kind of a, a testing period to, be, to see if, you know, social distancing can really be done in force from an office. And we've heard that at, at J.P. Morgan in particular, they executives there are going to be monitoring the situation to see that if as more people come in, you know, and the the trains get more crowded, um, if things go well and infections don't spike, they're considering becoming more forceful in their language and saying, you know, rather than framing this as an invitation to return, requiring more people to return with the idea being that, you know, 
if this is going to be the new normal where there's not going to be a vaccine, you know, probably not this year, then well, let's get to that sooner rather than later. Let's let's, you know, get more people back into right. the office because right. as well as things worked at home, like it's still important from a culture and control standpoint, um, at least in banking, for people to be, you know, interface next to each other in person. Well, what's interesting, and I, what I love about this story, and I, if you haven't seen it, um, I think I've put it out on Twitter. You guys should, everybody should read it in its entirety because you get into the specifics. Like J.P. Morgan, you say they've been reimbursing Uber and taxi rides to the office for traders below the managing director level so they don't have to share public transfer transportation. Investment banking, you said that the firm has asked that 50% of its dealmakers be in the office on any given workday. So there's stuff we know going on, depending on maybe what your job is. What I think is interesting too, though, you talk about those that are eager to kind of get back to work and how that can create anxiety in others who aren't so eager to get back to work. And I think whether you have kids, how you get to work, like there's a lot of factors at play here. Definitely. And I think what I have found most fascinating throughout this is that, you know, there's still a virus. And mm-hmm. two months ago, a lot of these banks were saying like, no, we don't want anyone. I mean, they're still saying we don't want anyone to feel pressure to come into the office, like do what's comfortable for you, what's best for you and, and your family members. The fact that conversations are even happening right now around, you know, we might get to the point in a few weeks where we're going to force you to come in like that. It just shows that we're, we're entering a new phase yeah. where, and that's you know, what you guys are. That's what you guys are hearing, right, from the folks and sources that you've talked to. That that's where it exactly. may be going. Yeah, it took it. Yeah. It took a hard turn. It feels like Michelle. I have to be honest. And and really, what fascinates me about it is this notion that it took a hard turn. Just as bigger and bigger question marks were raised around what I and I think others think is the biggest issue, which is schools. I mean, if you have young kids, if you have school-age kids, especially elementary school-age kids, this is a very, very difficult situation in terms of just the logistics of educating your kids and making a living. Absolutely. And and the public transportation, right. uh, you know, challenge is one that is makes getting back to normal in New York especially hard. I, I thought it was interesting. One of the people I spoke to who we included an anecdote from this person in the story was saying that she just thinks it's going to be inevitable that everyone's going to return to lockdown in just a few months. So that's why she's a worker at J.P. Morgan. And that's why she plans to kind of cycle in and out of the office right now because she's like, it's probably the only opportunity I'll get to see coworkers because we all know how this story plays out. Like the second you ease up on guidelines, infections are going to spike and we're right. going to go back to the beginning. And that's reporter Michelle Davis. Love talking to her because she's got so many great sources across Wall Street and people are starting to speak out about what they're hearing and what they're feeling. This is such a complicated time when it comes to how we're going to work, Carol. Yeah, it's all about comfort levels. But, you know, there is pressure, I think, on companies because I think there's a fear of losing a little bit of your culture by not bringing workers together. Or when it comes to Wall Street, such a competitive space, they're worried about losing deals or trades. And so they kind of want to get their teams back together. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we've got a conversation with the president and CEO of Mahindra North America. Talking all about the city where they live. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly 
from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, Mahindra and Mahindra, it's a massive global automaker, so much more, one of India's largest companies. And we know them for their cars, but we also know them for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And we found out the company's North American operations, they're also well-known in Detroit for helping that city. That is a truly American story in many ways. Yeah, you know what they're doing, Jason? They're providing funding and they're helping to create urban and community gardens and they're doing more. They're really helping to address COVID-19's impact on locally available food supplies in inner city areas. We're talking about Detroit, Flint, and Pontiac. They are doing some really impressive work. Rick Haas, President and CEO of Mahindra Automotive North America, he joined us to talk about that program. We had to begin, though, about the impact of the virus on the auto industry and their company? Well, you know, COVID, like every other uh, segment in, um, in, in the U.S. industry and, frankly, in the world, we've been, we've been heavily impacted. We, we've had to uh, furlough employees, shut down our facilities, try to bring them back up safely, um, all the protocols and, and just getting people comfortable um, with being in the office and with being um, uh, and kind of just sort of getting back into the routine of uh, uh, it has, has been a bit difficult through these last few months. Obviously, we're all looking forward to uh, hopefully a vaccine later this year and we can start to do things in a little more normal way. But it's really disrupted our, our business, including um, uh, I'm sure you've talked about this, including the supply chain. Right. right. Because when the auto companies go down, the supply chains go down with it. And there has to be a coordinated restart or else, you know, you, you don't have one part and you can't make things. Right. So, yeah, it's been a it's, it's been probably the most difficult year I've had in, the, in, in almost the 40 years I've been doing it. So. Well, and I do wonder, Rick, I, I imagine there's a lot going on among you and your global colleagues uh, across the Mahindra landscape in, in, in many ways, you know, dealing with this because this is a global pandemic. This isn't at all, you know, sort of regionally focused in many ways. And I do wonder what some of those conversations are like, especially because, you know, back in India, this has been a, a massively uh, impactful story as well. So they they've had the same kind of contraction in the second quarter that we had. It was it was the worst one in the history of the company or the the country, same as the United States. And so you know certain segments are impacted worse than others. Um, uh, at, you know automotive has been greatly impacted, but of course Mahindra's in a number of major sectors. Sure. And agriculture in India has actually done pretty well this year. And it's a lot of that's because uh, the rural areas haven't been as impacted, and there was a good monsoon season this year. And so, yeah, around the Mahindra world, depending on what segments people are in and um, and what the impact in that specific country is, we've all had to take actions. What's the outlook look like to you at this point? What kind of visibility do you have? What kind of economic environment are you anticipating, you know, into early next year? Uh, you know, it, it, look, at this point, frankly, it's still a little hard to say. We've been feeding people money here in the United States, at least for the last for the last several months. Right. Um, that's going to slow down and, um, and, and sort of stop as, 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 as we kind of get ourselves back into the swing of things. So, um, so yeah, we're, you know, I expect a, a contraction. The question is, how long does it last? We've got a big election coming up. Um, there's a lot of stuff in play this year. So it's really hard to say where the industry, um, where the industry goes. Um, you know, we play in, uh, our, our Rockstar product plays in the off-road segment, which interestingly, along with, swimming pools, motorcycles, bicycles, recreational vehicles, and, and so on. Those segments have actually done okay this year because people are using uh, those, those kinds of products to, to socially distance closer to their, their home. Right. 
So closer to home, I mean, this is something that, that you guys have been really focused on, to Carol's point and to your point, in a very holistic uh, economic level. We're going to talk more about this on the other side of uh, some news, but in just a minute, sort of tee this up for us, what you guys have been doing, because you are sort of leveraging a lot of the aspects uh, of the company to, to help out urban farmers there in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yes, we are. So, um, you know, we've we've been involved in urban farming. It's very interesting. Um, you know, Mahindra as a company has a has a rise philosophy, and it's and it's very personal for most of us. Um, as we uh, embed ourselves in different communities around the world, uh, one of the things uh, that we do, and in fact, it's one of the reasons I joined Mahindra instead of maybe some other company who doesn't think like this, is you go out, and you 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 engage with the community, you interact with the community, and as the businesses start to rise. Um, we'd like the communities to rise along with us. And so um, when I got back from, um, from when I re- relocated back from India back in 2013, one of the first things I did was I said, okay, what, how are we going to engage with the community? Yeah. And um, we ultimately settled on it was sort of serendipity. I, w- I had been home not very many weeks, and I was watching a show on one of the local news stations where they, talk, where they were talking about Detroit's large urban agriculture movement, which apparently has been – kind of growing since uh, the 80s when uh, a former mayor, Coleman Young, had a uh, like a Farm-A-Lot program, wow. a Farm-A-Lot program. So over the course of the last several decades, um, you know, that started because they were trying to turn blighted uh, abandoned lots into, into, into useful, right. uh, productive uh, pieces of property. So, you know, again, over the years since the 80s, this program has grown. And in fact, it's become a worldwide model. We have people that come into the city all over the United States and other countries to see how uh, Detroit has managed all of this, right? We looked at that situation, and of course, we're the largest uh, producer of tractors uh, in the world. And so, we partnered up for the first few years with our with our uh, with our um, agricultural division down in Texas, and we ran the program as a joint program. But today, um, there are a number of they're kind of feet on the boots on the ground community organizations and small nonprofits that run these. And these are just exactly the kinds of things that we like to get involved in. It's very personal for our whole team. And we have a team of folks who loves to engage with the community. You know, it's not like you go out one day a year and go paint houses or something, right? We're in, we get engaged with these folks all year round. And that's Rick Costa, president and CEO of Mahindra in North America. I loved his perspective, Carol, in part because this is a global automaker, but more than that, this is a global empire in many ways. So he's able to draw on not just intelligence about the car business, right. but intelligence about the entire global economy and also to take that down to a very local level in terms of how companies need to be thinking about the communities that are right in front of them. Man, he said it was his most difficult year that he has had in the 40 years that he's been in the industry. And he said, you know, in terms of an outlook, there's just so much going on right now. Let's not forget, even I think talked about it being an election year, that it's hard to know kind of where we go from here. And if it's the toughest year for someone in the car business, yes. that's saying something. You're listening to Bloomberg This Week. Coming up, my conversation with Tom Barrick, the legendary real estate investor. He's stepping back from Colony Capital. Yeah, they're making some aggressive moves. A great conversation coming up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly 
from Bloomberg Radio. Tom Barrick, that's a familiar voice to our audiences. Jason, he built, as you know so well, Colony Capital by buying distressed assets pretty much during each and every crisis over the past 30 years. But during the current downturn, you know what he's doing? He's actually selling brick-and-mortar properties as they look to reshape their portfolio, really focus on what they are calling digital infrastructure. So this was sort of a big moment for many reasons, Carol, because I actually saw Tom Barrick in the flesh in New York City, (laughs) him and his new CEO, Mark Ganzi. They came to New York. We went to their offices, socially distanced, for a wide-ranging interview, how the pandemic, it is accelerating so much of what's happening in an already disrupted real estate world. Check it out. Well, I think we're in transition. Um, And as the engineers and the builders of this infrastructure, we, we see where the traffic's going. Because once again, we're entrusted right. with that information. And what I would tell you today is, is from a network perspective, from a digital perspective, workloads are shifting from the urban core out to the suburbs in, in, a, in a pace that we've never seen in, in three decades. And what I mean by that is the proliferation of network infrastructure is more prominent in the suburbs than it is in the urban core today. So data centers are now being built, Jason, on the edge. We're now fighting to deploy infrastructure or build that next generation of real estate on the edge, which is happening in smaller cities where people have moved. You know, my my belief is some of this is somewhat overblown. I think people will come back to the urban core. Urban core is where really from from a social perspective and from a cultural perspective, that is where people like to be, where they want to entertain themselves. So I don't view this as being binary in terms of you know nobody coming back to New York City or nobody going back to Los Angeles or Miami, people will come back when they feel confident, when they feel confident that there's a good vaccine and that they ultimately feel like that there's a good cure. But in the meantime, the activity in the suburbs, which was largely neglected from a digital perspective, is where we're spending all of our time. And so, Tom, what do you make of that as someone who's been looking at, at real estate and it's the buying and selling of it, the consumption of it, the creation of it? I mean, is this a is this a catalytic or moment or an inflection point that we will look back on and say our cities were changed, our lives were changed? I don't, I don't think so. I'm I'm long New York City, by the way. If you were asking me, if I go back with my distress hat on, the first place I would be is here. The last place I would be is in in the other end of the transportation hub, right? So what's happened is great. Great places to live around New York City have grown from where does the train and, and the subway go? And that was the key consideration is I could buy a place in Greenwich at $1,000 a foot versus a co-op or a condo in Manhattan at 4,000 a foot and I can commute back and forth in, in the subway or train. I think young people are gonna get very tired of the suburbs very quickly the financial engines will exist in places like New York, London, Paris, Los Angeles. But again, it's just an accelerant. People here were already thinking of moving to Florida with a confiscatory tax regime and a political situation which they weren't happy with, whether the mayor is doing a good job or a bad job. It was perceived that it's, um, it's not working. You have an infrastructure here. People were worried about building a brand new condo or co-op. The streets are falling apart, the subway doesn't work, the bridges and tunnels are 100 years old. It's just accelerating everybody's thought and saying, you know what, this has is, this is frightened me. 
life is short. I want to enjoy my kids. Because of the digital frontier, I have other opportunities to do, and I want to be where I don't feel the pressure of this, of this epidemic every time I touch an elevator. My belief is that'll vanish. That will go away. The aftermath after this election cycle, whatever that is, will, will start to dissipate with, with a vaccine, with a cure. And I always ask my friends, I say, great, a vaccine, are you going to take one? Half of them will say never, right? right? So I, I, I think cities are here to stay. Suburbs are here to stay. The utilization of them is, is going to be different. And, and in it in a replicatable way, it's impossible to replicate New York City. And that's Tom Barrick, the executive chairman of Colony Capital, the founder, arguably one of the best known voices in real estate. Alongside Mark Ganzi, he's the CEO of Colony Capital as of July 1st. And listen, this is a seminal moment, an inflection point in many ways, handing over the reins, but also an entirely new strategy that they put in place actually before COVID-19, Carol, but it is all accelerating during this pandemic. Well, just interesting, right, that he's normally a buyer during times of downturn turns and crises, and now he's actually doing some selling. So yeah, talk about pivots during COVID-19. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, while Colony, like so many other companies, are pivoting as a result of the pandemic, many of us have been turning to our pets for companionship and fun while working from home. Jason, turns out it's part of a pet boom that's resulted in about two-thirds of the country now owning a pet. Everyone but you, apparently. More coming up on that. Yeah, apparently when you're pivoting, it <laughs> helps to have someone to cuddle with. It this does. is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, as you said on our show this week, we do love to take that 360 degree look at the world, every yeah. aspect of work and personal lives. And the other thing that I would say is we also know everything in the world is ultimately a business story and pets are no exception. I love this next guest because you noted that in the last 20 years, pets have gone from the backyard to sleeping on our beds. I can personally attest to that. (laughs) Writing about our best friends, Mark Cushing, he's CEO, founding partner of the Animal Policy Group. He's got a great background, former government regulatory advisor, former litigator. He's got a new book out. It's called Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. Check it out. Well, I've got... uh Two cats uh, from the same litter, uh, Oscar and Chloe. Oscar is a, a fat cat. Uh, I, I'm ashamed to take him to the vet because he's a, he's a big boy. <laughs> Chloe would be a perfect uh, Upper East Side Manhattan princess. And then, not, uh, not busy enough, we have a nine-month-old Papillon puppy. Wow. So cute. It's, uh, you know, the... He's got the ears, of course, of a butterfly, and he is a speedster who lives to chase desert lizards. Oh, my Figure goodness. That. He's, he's named after Louis Vuitton, but uh, you wouldn't know it. He's just life to him as a lizard, and he's in pursuit. <laughs> there well, you go. Well, you need to get him a Tiffany, although based on the news today, you don't need to get him a yeah. Tiffany. <laughs> Um, I can get him cheap. I can get him cheap. Though. Yeah, exactly. You get it <laughs> exactly. cheap. So this is obviously, and we're gonna. This is gonna be a wide ranging conversation. But but I do want to start by. This is very personal for you. I mean, you haven't always been in the pet business or in the animal business. So tell us about sort of how you got into this, and then ultimately what inspired you to write this book. So I, I, I'm supposed to say that, you know, I've, I love animals and I gave up my traditional law practice for pets. It didn't work that way. 
I was a partner in a large national law firm in the D.C. office, and I'm, I'm a hired gun, right? I got called to solve a problem for the pet industry back in 2005 in Congress, and I had good fortune and got a good result, and my phone started ringing off the hook. And I figured before that that, that I'd do one thing and that'd be it. And 15 years later, I'm full-time. And so I, I was pulled in for business reasons, and I was lucky because I caught the wave of the surge of interest in pets. Yeah. And nobody saw it coming, particularly the pet industry didn't. I don't think the pet industry, even as recently as two years ago, believed things were going to stay as good as they are and get even better. And so I've been uh, very fortunate, uh, Jason, to be uh, on the front end of a lot of issues with great clients that you all know, like Mars Veterinary, Zoetis, Royal Canin, and, and just major groups and businesses that are involved in pet, pet health care, well, represent it- a lot of veterinary colleges. So, Mark, I got to ask you, I mean, one of the things that really jumps out to me and as has been uh, well pointed out by my co-host, I'm not a current uh, pet owner, but I do have an appreciation uh, for pets and have many in my extended family, a lot of dog lovers especially. Um, Mark, it sounds like a lot of excuse to me, but we'll we'll just let it go for now. Just let it go. But, Mark, it is fascinating to think about sort of the demographic and the economics of this, which I know you've studied extensively. How does that play through to this this broader industry, and what does it mean in terms of who's owning pets? Well, we're approaching a $100 billion a year pet industry sector in the U.S., and right now you have 65% of households getting close to 70% that have a pet. So uh, it, it's a significant percentage. And of all the pets owned, 60 to 62% are owned by millennials and Gen Zs. The whole transformation of pet culture, which my book, uh, Pet Nation, covers, began with baby boomers. Hmm. But the children of baby boomers, a lot of millennials and Gen Zs, have just taken it and just surged ahead. And so you're seeing the following. They want to spend all the money it takes for pet health care. They want health care delivered for pets at the same level they get it as humans. They want designer, you know, high-end nutrition. They, they want basically care when they, can, when they want it on demand. And there's really no end to what they would like to spend or are willing to spend to keep their pet comfortable to enjoy their pet. 25 years ago, you couldn't, couldn't think about that. We just had a great Hyundai uh, Christmas ad last December, if we can remember that far ago, of five Hyundais tall to small lined up, and in front of them were five dogs positioned tall to small. The fascinating thing, uh, Jason, is that the Hyundai executives knew and wanted you to look at the dogs, not the cars. Right. So we've reached, a, we've reached a point where car executives will spend millions of dollars on a 30-second ad, and the entire purpose is to associate their car brand with a dog. Period. No discussion of performance, engine, you know, miles per gallon, you name it. It's all about association with pets. And so that, that whole mindset is a cultural shift, and it plays out uh, on the business side. You've got probably 60 private equity firms now that are investing directly in practice, veterinary practice consolidation groups. There were five about six years ago. And, and I get calls weekly from groups saying, We've got to get into pet because we know how thriving and how much 
of a recession-proof sector it, it's proven to be, and I, I think is now. So uh, veterinary practices are up 10 to 20% from last year during COVID. You know, it's, that's a pretty good sign. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting is I, I, um, I think about we had Danny Blanchflower on from Dartmouth and he, his walk about economics. And as I've walked about masked on social distancing during the, the pandemic and just kind of look at, you know, garbage night, what kind of boxes people are putting out. There's been a lot of chewy boxes. Like it's, <laughs> but it's interesting to, you know, you get an idea of what people are spending money on right. as they've been home. Listen, we have a bark box that comes in once a month, you know, um, for our dog and you know my happy on counts on it my dog's <laughs> waiting for his next yeah. one scout He's knows when it comes in the door like, yeah. <laughs> you know this, you got it you know but it but it is interesting what a big business it's become and just seems to get greater i think you know jason we have a market guest mark we have a market guest that comes on um and constantly talks about chewy hillary as, yeah hillary, hillary, hillary Kramer, Kramer. yeah it's one of her favorite stocks well yeah. let, let me give you an example that, that that you'll particularly appreciate in manhattan I don't think any sector has changed itself to accommodate pets more and faster than the hotel sector, which is being hammered right now in COVID. So I'm not trying to pick on them, but the, uh, just the opposite. 25 years ago, you know, no dogs allowed, no pets allowed. That was the standard. If you showed up at a Four Seasons and said, meet my papillon, they'd say, where are you camping tonight? Because you're certainly not staying here. Um, now, now hotels, high end to low end, have special floors for non-pet owners. In other words, the hotel's now pet-friendly, but they will carve out one floor and say, non-pet owners, this is yours. And you couldn't have thought about that uh, two decades ago. And, and that's, that's across the housing sector. It's across the hotel sector, the VRBO, Airbnb, all, all that has just accommodated the fact that people want pets with them and they even want to take them to work. As you know, a study was done, a great study that said, Workers at companies of 100 employees or more like their company better if it's pet friendly, even if they don't have a pet. So you don't have a pet, Jason, but you like working and you like your boss more if it's a pet friendly environment. So that words out the Wall Street Journal did a piece two weeks ago on pets as perks. And it's now become a standard employee benefit as right. part of your employee package. So you, know, you look around, you know, we're just finding some piece of this every week to, you know, to unfold and plug pets in, and that's, that's interesting. So one thing, you know, Mark, and, and Carol brought this up as, as a concerned pet owner and also as a very empathetic human being uh, and someone who, who thinks about the world and, and thinks about pets especially, and this notion that, you know, a lot of people have really leaned on their pets during this pandemic. They've been at home. They've been working from home. As people go back to the office, how much do you worry about, and I'm not talking about separation as much as candidly like neglect and, you know, people who've sort of adopted a pet for, you know, out of some loneliness, which is legitimate, but now their life changes or goes back a little bit to normal and the pet, the dog or cat especially is left behind. Well, the New York Times did a piece uh, 10 days ago that claimed at least that 38% of pet owners now, when they go back, are considering, they haven't decided for sure, but they're considering buying another pet to keep their current pet company <laughs> so they're not lonely. Now, two things about that are, in, two things about that are interesting. Just quickly, the though. One thing is, is, 
yeah, one thing's bad news. There aren't enough dogs in America yeah. right now to meet that demand. And if 38% went out to look, they couldn't find one. But it just shows you that people are paying attention to their pet. Yeah. And my sense is they're not going to neglect them. They're going to cut a deal where they're home twice a week. And that's Mark Cushing, the CEO, founding partner of the Animal Policy Group. As you said, he has a varied corporate and government background. But man, pets, it's a massive business. He really captures it in this new book. I loved catching up with him. And really, I learned a lot as a non-pet owner about everything that's going on and all the money you guys are spending on those furry friends. Well, it's a huge industry, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And we've seen a lot of other big, well-known companies, whether it's Mars and some others, just upping their exposure to the pet industry. So, um, so great that we could wrap up with him. And that does wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio. That's our show, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And in addition to our daily podcast, you should be subscribing. Download our Business Week Extra podcast this week. It features our conversation with the writer and creator of the new Netflix series, Away. We know you're binging out there. This is a good one. Yeah, it absolutely is. We'll be back next week at the same time. Stay safe, everybody. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.